You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. As this year comes to a close, and I can hardly believe I'm saying that because it's just flown by, but as the year comes to a close, I've been thinking a lot about how sustainable fashion is its own vocabulary, its own language. And that language, of course, has the power to include and the power to exclude. And yet, I often feel that although we, as members of the sustainable fashion community, may be using the same words, those words might mean entirely different things depending on where in the conversation we sit. So I wanted to try an episode where we zero in on terms that are critical to the sustainable fashion vernacular and talk about what they mean to people who sit in different parts of the sustainable fashion landscape. And I figured we might as well start with two pretty big words, the word brand and supplier. And those, those two words are the subject of today's episode. To talk about these words, I wanted to bring together a group who, as our guest today, Sharon Sang, pointed out to me, defies a lot of stereotypes. Sharon's parents are from Hong Kong. She's spent significant time in both Canada and Hong Kong. She currently lives in Hong Kong, where she founded a new studios, a boutique sustainable sourcing and consulting company catering to small and medium-sized fashion brands. Her entry point into the world of fashion was initially on the brand side in Canada, though she now occupies a very much in-between space. My co-founder, Jesse, who regular listeners will know well, um, is also part of this week's conversation. And as regular listeners will also know, Jesse is originally Chinese, though she's currently based in Cambodia. She started out her career working for a third-party inspection company in China, and then she went on to work on the brand side, still in China, for a buying office, before ultimately working on the supplier side for a factory in Cambodia, which is where the two of us met. Then there's me. As regular listeners will also know, I am a white woman born to Dutch American parents. I was raised a bit everywhere. And I've only ever worked on the supplier side as a garment factory manager. But my educational upbringing and background is very quote unquote Western. I have a degree in human rights from a university in London. And I would describe my time as a factory manager as an experience that little by little, one by one, undid all of the things I thought I knew about what sustainability should be. To kick things off, we each shared the things that come to mind when we hear this word brand and this word supplier. What are the attributes that in each of our respective views sets these groups apart? Not only did we each have very different answers to this question and ideas about what each of these terms mean, we also had very different feelings and and emotions associated with each term. Despite these differences, the one thing that we did have in common was that we all struggled to del- to cl- sort of clearly delineate between the two terms. We all were sort of unanimous in our conclusion that despite all of our differences, the terms are fluid. Many suppliers are also brands and some suppliers, some brands, sorry, are also suppliers. So the distinction was blurry for all of us. Now, we all know that there's a kind of essentialism that happens in these conversations, a kind of shorthand that groups together very diverse groups of people and lumps them according to a a single or maybe a couple defining features. But, But if what a brand is and what a supplier is, is number one, defined by where in the supply chain you sit, and number two, even then, is a super fluid 
or blurry delineation, then why are these terms so central to the sustainable fashion conversation in the first place? This gets us into a conversation about power. Brands and retailers, we sort of tentatively conclude, are lumped together because they are in a position of power. Suppliers, in contrast, are not. So what gives brands these power? Is it the nature of commercial relationships? Or something deeper, like history and a brand's ability to talk to a particular group of people from a particular part of the world. And the last thing I'll say before we get into the conversation and the episode is that throughout this episode, we use terms like quote-unquote global north and quote-unquote global south. And we use these terms not because we think the people who make up these groups necessarily have any single thing in common, but because it's a useful way for talking about power structures. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following along on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to Off the Beaten Path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. We, I think, very rarely stop to consider what is a brand and what is a supplier. And so I wanted to have a conversation about that. And I wonder, Sharon, if you would be willing to kick things off with like, what comes to your mind when you think of the word brand? And what comes to your mind when you think of the word supplier? Okay. For me, okay, I will say right off the bat that those two words have evolved for me I think Mm. over the course of my career I would say now for me a brand is like really at the core is like a creative enterprise and I see them as they should be design and innovation led companies who market and create new innovative products and well-designed products and they introduce or market it to specific customers but that definition, I feel, is nuanced by the brand size, like whether they're a startup, small to medium, or a large conglomerate, right? And the extent to which the brand's mission, uh, core values are rooted in sustainability, or is it to really just grow, sell clothes, generate more profits, um, instead of creating value and innovation? And how about supplier? Okay, for me, I think for a supplier, it's a bit more complicated. It probably has evolved from like more of an exploitive relationship, I will say, to a more empathetic and authentic relationship with them. Okay. Um, and I say this, this is the context is, you know, at the start of my career working for brands, it was always to sell clothes faster, maximize the margin. I knew I was the buyer and the customer to the suppliers. And so I could always push the supplier more to get a better cost or better delivery because they needed that business. And and so year over year, I would renegotiate, you know, carryover styles despite, you know, there could have been raw material price increases, but it was always like you knew you had that sort of buyer upper hand to work with suppliers. But one season I really learned the hard way was when a manufacturer was really ready to walk away because it just didn't, my negotiation tactics at that point 
no longer made business sense for them to keep working with us. And he wanted to forfeit the order instead. And so now when I look back at that experience, um, I thank the supplier because they helped me realize that a brand and supplier relationship is sort of this double-edged sword, right? That you have to really value these relationships that you build. Um, and you have to think of them as like long-term stakeholders. Um, and they are, are part of the brand's operations, I feel. Because if there's no manufacturer making the product or helping you product develop or innovate, there is no product for, for the brand to sell. Jesse, how about you? When you think of brand and when you think of supplier, like what are the words that come to your mind? I, I gave some thoughts to this. And interestingly, I found myself mostly in a kind of failing in different contexts. When I'm in the context of a consumer, you know, as a consumer, as an individual, so brands, when I think about brands, it recalls a very different feeling like uh, expectation, there is a story. Or expectation, there is, yes, expectation, there is a story to tell, a nice image to see. So that's my feeling about, uh, about brands. But if I switch to a context of work, you know, either I speak to a brand as the representative of a supplier, like my previous job, or either I work for brands and facing negotiations with suppliers, my feeling about the brands totally changed. If you tell me, oh, Jesse, we have some brands to, to visit today, my feeling is, uh, oh, I feel nervous. I feel stressful. I feel brand is something you need to carefully handle because there are always unexpected requirements and you can't really say no to them. So you need to carefully handle them. You can't say no. You also can't really say yes. And uh, if you talk with me about brands in this context, I would feel they are a group of buyers, you know, a group of, uh, and a group of designers who don't really know how production is, but they have all sorts of requirements or all sorts of, uh, I don't know if I can call it interesting. They are very demanding to, to the suppliers. So it's all about emotion, like, uh, like, uh, anxiety or or nervous or stress so that's my that's my two sides feeling about brands depends on which context i'm in i love that you chose to answer this with like your feeling because i never would have thought to answer the question that way if you ask me about suppliers it's the same if i'm in a context of being a consumer or individual i walk into a shop i saw a product i actually often felt uh, proud as if I'm one of the suppliers, like, especially if the product is well made, mm. I can see the workmanship, you know, I often felt surprised in my mind to say, wow, they managed to have the sewing line so neat, so clean, so carefully. I, I feel I can see how they carefully handle this product. So in the context of consumer, I feel suppliers are someone who should, I think they are, it's not who should. I see. I, I, I sense the suppliers, a group of people, they are proud of what they know, what they are capable of. And the image of suppliers in my mind is like people who know very well what they are doing. They know, they really know what they are doing, how much they produce, why they produce that way, and so on. They are the experts. 
But then if I switch to the context of work, no matter I work in a factory or I work as merchandisers for brands, the feeling totally changed. I feel suppliers, suppliers are someone who are struggling all the time. <laughs> They're struggling in their daily life. They're anxious. Yeah, another feeling is anxious. Like they're anxious about the demanding requirements or always anticipating something unexpected will happen or struggling to control the daily operations, which is not easy mm. to control or trace. And I also feel a bit uh, unfair or feel a bit uh, upset that I feel suppliers are strong in what they are doing, but in negotiations, they somehow become someone of much weaker position. Okay. I'm going to share my definitions and then we can debrief. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when I when I thought of the word brand, the first thing I thought of, like the first thing I wrote down actually was an entity that sells clothes. And then later, like an hour later, I was thinking about it again and I was like, Kim, that is the most ridiculous and absurd thing you've ever written because obviously a factory also sells clothes. Right? <laughs> and so I was like, so then I was like, I had to qualify it. So I was like, okay, they sell clothes to an individual or to a shop. Then I was like, I don't know, maybe when we think of the idea of a brand, really what we're talking about is selling clothes to people in the global north. Factories, then I was thinking about like factories, right? Factories sell clothes to brands, but factories, lots of factories also sell clothes directly to individuals, you know, in, especially like in their, in their domestic markets. The other thing I wrote down was like, they're supposed to know what people or what the market wants. And then again, I later went back and qualified that. And I was like, well, which people? Because everyone in the world wears clothes, right? And we're not talking about everyone in the world. So I was like, they're supposed to know what people in a certain market want uh, to wear. And, and then the other thing I wrote down was they sell clothes, but they especially advertise clothes and market clothes. And then the last thing I wrote down is that they control the price and maybe the distribution. So that was what I wrote down on the brand side. On the supplier side, I wrote down makes clothes. And so that's kind of like where I was, I guess, when I first started thinking about this question was like the differentiator for me was like somebody who markets and markets clothes versus somebody who makes clothes on the design point. And I want to talk to you more about this, Sharon, because I wrote down one of the things I wrote down was they design most clothes. And like that really comes from oh, part, like, design most clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and I think that comes in part from like personal experience, like, you know, uh, when Jesse and I were working together at Pactix, the factory in Cambodia, like, you know, sometimes we had brands who came to us who knew exactly what they wanted and they said, like, please make us this. But sometimes, and actually more often, they would be like, oh, we sort of have this in mind or that in mind. Like, can you please like figure figure out how to do it? And sometimes we even had like a collection of like off the shelf, off the shelf like products that we could be like, hey, why don't you just buy this? And then you don't have to do any development and then we'll stick your logo on it. 
you know, and, and I, and like the more in the last couple of years, like, as I've talked to more and more manufacturers, I think that this is actually super common. And then what I also wrote down is like, what does even even mean to be creative too? Because I was thinking the other word I wrote down when I thought about like supplier was like, was resourceful. And to me being resourceful is also a kind of creativity, like the kinds of problems that a factory has to solve can be sometimes like require some really creative solutions. And maybe that's what I also wrote down when I, when I, uh, I didn't write this down, but I'm thinking of it now, but when I think of supplier, I think of, and it goes without saying, I guess, all right, but I think of the word factory, right? Um, which I guess goes along with like some, an entity that makes clothes. Okay, pause. As I listen to this in the editing process, I feel compelled to jump in and correct my former self because not only, because there's plenty of agents out there too and vendors who are also suppliers but and spend a lot of time in factories but are not factories themselves. Okay, pause over. Kim, from your description, it sounds like the border, uh, the line between brands and the suppliers are so blurry. You know, they, they become, I don't know, one become more and more like the other. Like suppliers more that, and does more. That, does that like resonate with you though or not? Going back to my nuance, I was saying like, I think depending on the brand's size and resources, I think mm. that overlap will vary. Like, I think if you're a startup, either you're a startup that you have a really innovative fabric or innovative idea for a product, then that, that way you it may be more that they come to the table of design that are never been done before. And, I, and I'll use an example of an upcycling brand I worked for, you know, where we tried to design a collection with this sustainable designer where it want, they wanted it to be zero waste. For me, like it was the first time I had tried to create a zero waste like collection with a quite a big mass production factory. So we were like in their sample room trying to figure like disrupting their whole like usual way of doing sampling because they usually only do one size of like that prototype and then they do the grading afterwards. Right. But we were trying to basically do the grading at the first prototype because we wanted to maximize and use all the fabric. And so I think when, when a brand is very creative and they're like really disrupting, I think it, it could be that the brand is leading the design, but you still have to listen, I think, to the supplier because they're the ones that are going to actually make it. I think fluid is really the word to describe the, the relationship now or the definition now about brands and the suppliers. The concept uh, becomes flowing. And yeah, will, will you will you uh, share with us your thoughts on brands? Another thing pop up in my mind, which is kind of bias. I, I I'm aware mm. it's a bias, but it's here. It's like uh, brands from global north seems to represent a more positive images in my mind than brands from global south. What do you and mean? That's also like for instance, well. Here is not really, the, my example is really not Global North or Global South. Let's say there is a brand from uh, US, let's say, saying it's a sustainable brand. And that buys more credit in my mind. And if there is a Chinese brand saying it's a sustainable brand, somehow I gave more doubts to it. I, I know there really? is a shame. Yeah. But I also aware, I'm also aware there are lots of good Chinese brands, actually, which is true. However, I still have this 
bias, you know. And the interesting part is if you tell me, oh, there is a very nice, sustainable Cambodian brands selling clothes, and I will give more respect to that Cambodian brands than U.S. brand or maybe than Chinese brand, because I know the context here. I know it's not easy, actually, to have a real sustainable clothes brand in Cambodia, like made in Cambodia and the market in Cambodia, and also sell in Cambodia. This is maybe what I was getting at. Like I, when I started thinking about these two terms, brand versus supplier, I started thinking about it as a technical question. Technically, what is the difference? Like, what functions do these two entities do that distinguishes or differentiates them? And then, like as Jesse like commented, like technically, I couldn't come up with a good answer. Technically, it was blurry, right? And so then I was like, okay, well. If the technical boundaries between these two terms are so like, are so sort of fluid, like and changing, and if every brand, like if a brand can be a supplier or manu, and by supplier I mean manufacturer, and vice versa, and if these are like such fluid concepts, like why do we use them? You know, like why are they useful for us? And like why are they so like critical and so central? To the conversation that we have around sustainability, and that's when I started to think about, like, okay, so then maybe these labels, like, maybe maybe it's not about something technical, maybe it's about something else, and that's when I started to think, like, okay, so maybe it's about like power, power. Maybe it's、yeah. about power. I think the question you ask is very good. Like, what gives power to brands? That's a very good question. When I think about it, I'm thinking. Maybe it's the、uh, ability of telling a good story. Brands are really good at telling a story. I don't know where they got this ability. What gives power to brands? The thing that gives them the power to be a marketing machine is a is a certain history, right? Yeah, yeah, and, a, and an understanding of a certain group of people. Well, I think manufacturers don't realize that they have more power. You know, as you're doing business in the context of sustainability, like understand. Each role, like traditionally, what it is, but also be open to stepping to the other side and seeing it、mm. from different perspective.、Mm. Like, because what helped me is like as I, you know, moved into micro and be able to travel overseas, go to the factories and see people eye to eye and like talk to them about thing and understanding why something costs the way it is. You have a whole different appreciation instead of just looking at a cost sheet and negotiating. I keep thinking the question: What gives power to brands, and why factories sometimes some factories feel they are on a weaker position? Is that because brands in the in the supply chain, brands is the one initiate need. They initiate the、um, the starting power. You see, they place orders. I mean, which factory would produce if there's no no orders, right? The one who has orders, the one who initiate the supply chain to make the chain start to 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 flow, is the one who have more power than a producer. Just like the customer、know. has a power on the brands, I guess, because they're trying the brands are trying to sell to them. <laughs> They try right, which yeah, yeah, but also manipulated, no. Somehow. But I think there's like there's history here too. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. That、uh, 
if you look if if you look into the history in the past decades, in 1980s China started to open up. So you have capitals, international capitals, flood in and so on. At that moment, this is I think this is what you said. There is a history. So when some when people are eager to get something from. Let's say an order or some new techniques or something. They are somehow on a position, not willing to say no, right? Even the requirement may be not very reasonable, but they don't want to say no because everything has been seen as an opportunity. It's it's not that they are not able to say no. I think they are able to say no, but do they want to say no? Maybe they they don't want to say no to something looks like opportunity, even there is a price. But isn't it easy? Sometimes isn't it easier now for Chinese suppliers to say no to export orders because it's just easier and faster to make domestic orders. It's easier now after let's say thirty years, forty years. Yeah, that's why lots of government <laughs> factories moved to other places. Suppliers need to recognize their own, their powers more than before. They do have powers. They probably have more powers than they thought, and they needed to. They need to recognize that. For instance, if we talk about sustainability, suppliers need to take back the power of definition. I think they do have this power、mm. to define what sustainability it is. They are they are the makers. They are the producers. They should have naturally. They have power. They are the experts of how to make things. So they should take back the definition of、uh, sustainability. And speaking of taking back definitions. I can't help but jump in with a quote that I'm reminded of, and it's a quote by the novelist Chimamanda Adichie in her TED Talk, "The Danger of a Single Story," which I'll put a link to in the show notes, and I highly recommend watching if you haven't watched it already. And in that talk, she says, and I quote: "Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person." End quote. And so, as a parting thought for this episode. My question is this: What is the sustainable fashion story that brands and retailers are telling, and how are they defining suppliers? I guess my own answer to that question, and this will be the final thing I say before I close the episode, is that you know when I first started working as a factory manager, a garment factory manager, I had a really hard time with this label, and I. Felt the need to qualify it, you know. When I introduced myself, I would say to people, and I was qualifying it both for myself, but also to friends who were mostly white, left-leaning liberals back home. I would say to people that I was the manager of a sustainability-minded factory, and it was important for some reason to me to identify and point out and defend, ultimately, I suppose, my positioning as. "Quote unquote good guy," and eventually I stopped qualifying my title. I would start to say to people, "I manage a garment factory." Full stop, and I wouldn't offer any sort of qualification. And I would see also how uncomfortable that made people.、Um, again, when I say people, I'm talking about mostly white, left-leaning liberals back home. 
who would say, oh, you know, who, who would basically be looking for information that would help them gauge like which camp to put me in. Was I a good guy or a bad guy, so to speak? You know, they might ask me, for example, follow-up questions like how did I feel about unions or, you know, what kind of products was I making was, or what, you know, was I paying people a decent living? Um, you know, how much were, how much were my staff earning? You know, the more, so the more I inhabited this role of a factory manager, you know, the more I realized that the sustainability challenges that factory managers face are part of a larger system of asymmetrical power relations. And I realized also that I'd internalized certain racially rooted stereotypes about who a factory manager is and their role as quote unquote bad guy in the sustainable fashion story. And I also realized that I had a blind spot. And Mazarin Banaji, a Harvard psychologist and co-author of the book Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People, researches how when you pair two things over and over, they come to be associated with one another. For example, bread goes with butter, leaders are male, nurses are female. And I realized that repeatedly throughout my life, and my life was, you know, again, I'm a white half American, half Dutch, raised in certain education systems, reading certain types of media in English. And repeatedly throughout my life, this word factory manager was paired with sweatshops. And it was sort of, that was why I was so uncomfortable with this title. You know, Banaji, she suggests that when people are asked to reverse these associations, they struggle. And experiencing this difficulty is what allows people to understand how deeply ingrained culture and its implicit biases really are. And if you're interested in hearing more of my thoughts on my struggle with this title, I actually wrote about it at length in an article about two years ago, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and it's called How Racism Shapes Fashion's Approach to Sustainability. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 